Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. Michael Shelley here. Interesting one today because Dorothy Carvello is our guest. She's a former A&R executive, worked for a bunch of labels, but started her career at Columbia Records, not at Columbia, at Atlantic Records, where she kind of talked her way into an interview and got a job as an assistant to Amit Erdogan and eventually became the very first female A&R executive at the label. And throughout her career, she's just treated horribly simply because she's a female and just horrible things happen. It's an interesting book on a lot of levels because it just shows you the inner workings of the record company and the record business, including she details how they stole from artists and withheld royalties and did all these kind of sneaky, horrible things. So, enjoyable book. We'll talk to her and uh, sort of get the inside story. Uh, don't forget to keep your eyes on wfmu.org slash Michael for the list of upcoming guests and the uh, archives of all the previous programs. And that's it. Enjoy this, me and Dorothy Carvello. All right, there's Ruth Brown from 1952, and we're uh, pleased to welcome Dorothy Carvello, the author of Anything for a Hit to the Program. Good morning, Dorothy. How are you this morning? I'm great. Good morning to you, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, it's a pleasure. I uh, This is one of those books I could not put down kind of uh, for a lot of reasons, because of your story and because it tells the story of just the nuts and bolts of a crazy time in the music industry for everybody and all these crazy characters coming in and out. I want to talk about all of that. The craziest character of all is Ahmet Erdogan, uh, and the book sort of starts 2006. He, he, he calls you late at night. He's lonely. He's this kind of lonely, broken old man. He died just a few months later. And this is a guy who kind of weaves in and out of the book. And one of the things he says to you is, you know, about your disappointment in your career is, what do you expect? You're a woman. And that kind of sets the table for what this whole book is about. This... And it's a sort of a perfect time for this book to come out because this is very much in the national conversation now. So tell me what motivated you now to write this book. Was it sort of the groundswell of everything happening? Well, no, it wasn't. I got my book deal in April 2017 before I never even heard of the Me Too movement. What always motivated me to write this book and always wanted to and tried several times was that I knew that I was unfairly treated based on my gender alone and that the men in the music business would just tell you right to your face that you're not getting a raise because you're a woman or you're a married woman. What do you need the money for? And the way that they would speak to you was just so shocking that it always bothered me. And I never really got to the level of success that I should have solely based on my gender and also complaining about it and opening my mouth. So that's what was my motivation. Ahmed Erdogan comes off as kind of a monster. I mean, a, a horrible, does some horrible, horrible stuff to you and to everybody, and yet you still sort of have this affection for him. Can you explain that? Well, yes, it is funny. Um, you know, it's amazing he was just a very self-absorbed uh, person, a man with substance abuse. But every once in a while, you would get these glimpses of humanity from him. They were few and far between. And just based on my own you know, Christian upbringing, I couldn't help but forgive him and feel sorry for him at the same time. You know, he may not have deserved it, but, you know, I always 
had compassion for people that were suffering. And even though he had so much more than me in terms of material things and accolades and success, he was really devoid of so many of basic, you know, human thought process. And, <laughs> and that, I, I, you know, I just, he, he was just so self-absorbed that I couldn't help but feel really sympathy for the devil, as the song says. Mm. Yeah, this is a guy, though, who inappropriately tried to touch you many times throughout the book, three or four times. He, I mean, he's trying to put his hands in, you know, places that are clearly off limits. Uh, it's just gross, you know, and uh, I don't have as much forgiveness as you. You're <laughs> – and, and you were there. It's amazing. And, you know, I have this theory that, you know, you needed a father figure sort of. And your childhood, which you describe in the book, you, you sort of didn't fit into your family, didn't fit in as a kid. Somebody in your family – who said this? Said you're too stupid, well, yes, growing up in an Italian uh, household, you're not really given much encouragement. And especially as a woman, all my, my mother and my aunts were subservient to my father and my uncles and my brothers came before me. And if you had any kind of ambition and said, oh, I want to be, you know, whatever it was, a doctor, a fireman, a musician, you know, they would just say, you're too stupid. Because <laughs> like, anything that I would say they just dismissed you as stupid. I mean, it was a very different kind of an upbringing than, say, how people bring up children today. You, you didn't get encouragement. And a matter of fact, they discouraged you at every turn. Like, oh, what are you going to go to college for? Why would you want to do that? You know, why are you going to spend all that money? Uh, why all you could, you know, you should just get married and have children. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that really wasn't for me. Mm. And being a woman not wanting to really settle down and have a family, you know, they looked at you like, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen to this girl? So, <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I have a daughter, and I, I had her in mind so often uh, as I was reading, reading the book. So you have this idea that you want to get into the music business. It's kind of something that sticks with you, and you're very clever in that you find – Somebody who knows somebody, and you f you figure out a long way to to get at least an interview, and then you figure out another way to take somebody out to lunch who works in the office to sort of get the inside scoop, and you get this interview, and eventually you get uh, your first job at Atlantic Records, which is what the secretary to the chairman in 1987 was a secretarial job to Ahmed Erdogan. Immediately, you're you're in the in the middle of of everything. I mean, this is a, an incredible you know, get foot in the door. You know, it's a great first step for anybody. You kind of describe the office atmosphere as a place where women are used like Kleenex and uh, it's just a disaster. And you're witness to all sorts of law breaking and just morally repugnant behavior. Uh, tell me about indie promoters. This is something I, I had always heard of, but I, I don't know exactly what it means. Basically in the book, you describe this situation where we used to just uh, promoters, record companies would just give DJs a hundred dollars or a bottle of whiskey or something. Uh, and that sort of became illegal or just had too many eyes on it. So there became this middleman thing, independent promoters, and you would pay them and somehow they would get the records on the radio. Why were they able to get the records on the radio? Were they bribing people? What, what was happening? Well, 
Yes, that would be what the implication was. They would take care of the radio program directors and the people associated with the radio stations to get the records played. But since the payola uh, became illegal, you, these it became an industry of in, indies. They would call them independent promoters, and it would make like a legal wedge of where the money went. So the record company, instead of paying the DJs or the program directors or the radio stations directly, they would give it to the independent promoters, which charge an exorbitant amount of money, and they would be responsible for, you know, three or four stations in certain regions of the country, and that would get the radio, uh, the radio play for the record. And that's how all the record companies did it. You know, in the early days of Atlantic, I mean, Ahmed would tell stories that radio, uh, you know, radio station program directors would just come to the office and they would just open up a safe and hand them cash. <laughs> and that's how the records got played. But, uh, you know, that eventually became illegal and then they just found another way around it. As with most things that are illegal, people find ways around it. Mm. Uh, but to make it clear, the the indie promoters illegally incentivized the radio stations, in your opinion? Well, they, you know, in my opinion, everyone knew they would take shortcuts. However they did it, nobody asked any questions. I mean, gotcha. I, I didn't really deal too much on the radio side. I was on the A&R side, but, you know, they would have huge budgets at the companies for these independent promotion men. So another funny thing is you talk about these fake uh, gold records status the there was a yeah tell me how that worked uh what kind of acts got these fake gold records and how did the the record label make sure that somebody got a gold record who didn't deserve one well they the whole uh, chapter in the book about the claims and the cutouts um and how if uh atlantic had an underperforming artist I give a fictional account, like Laura Branigan, for instance, her records, even though she got huge radio airplay and would get number one records in airplay, it didn't necessarily translate to um, huge sales. You know, people liked hearing the record on the radio, but they wouldn't necessarily go by the album. Then at the same time, if we had a huge group, let's, I gave the example of In Excess that had a huge record in 1987, 88, with kick, they would just go to the retailers and say, take a, you know, a 500,000 copies order of Laura Branigan and we'll give you a discount on in excess. So if you had 500,000 in sales or orders, that was what the recording, the RIAA certified as gold at the time, Laura Branigan would go gold. So let's say those orders went in on the end of the month, October 31st, November 1st, she, the returns would start to come into the label, but yet she would still be certified, that album would still sort of be certified as gold. So we don't really know those albums at the time that were involved in this Queens and Cutout scandal, we don't really know if they were really legitimately gold, were they legitimately um, platinum. But the artists are just with the book being out, just realizing what happened. So I would think that at some point they'll be going back to find out um, through accounting, forensic accounting, you know, are they old royalties? Is this going to be a moment in history like Barry Bonds where we're going to have an asterisk <laughs> next to these uh, groups? And we don't really know. 
what went on, but I'm sure eventually I've been getting calls from some of the artists saying, yeah, we'd like to find out. Interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah. So Atlantic would convince stores, retail, to order multiple copies of a record that wasn't selling. Would they actually get the physical copies and return them, or was this just an on-paper no, transaction? No, on paper. Oh. On paper. The records, in most cases, never even left the warehouse. Gotcha. But you would hand in your order sheets at the end of the month as a salesperson, and it would show it. That's what they would go by. So you're talking about... Uh, you, you mentioned this sort of scandal of cleans and uh, promos. We don't need to get fully into it, but the book sort of talks about how uh, some records would get cut out even though they didn't need to be really just in a in a systematic way to cheat artists out of their royalties. Why? I mean, the whole womanizing way of the office and the whole taking it for granted that you could cheat artists, that whole sort of lawlessness, prostitutes, drugs that you describe, why the music business was so rife with that? What What is specific, or is it every business? Well, you know, I don't know, but I think it's human nature, sadly, if there's an opportunity to take and do, you know, bad things, this type of man, for some reason at that time, was drawn into the music business, the people making the decisions. You know, these were not uh, people with, like you said, strong morality. They had built this system of cheating, and they just continued it when they could have stopped it at any moment. And it was enabled by their corporate bosses. You know, this was a publicly traded company I worked at. And the corporation turned a blind eye because profits were so humongous. They were printing money at that time with physical product, with no computers really in the office per se to do any kind of constant checking and accounting. And they didn't care because mm. sadly, they, it's all about their own riches, their own advancement, their own power. You know, these people were drunk with power. They did what they wanted to do, and they answered to nobody. There were no repercussions at the top. Yeah, that's it's, yeah, it's an amazing confluence of circumstances. Do you think it's still going on? Is it Has it changed at all in the music business? Yes, because you have less physical product. You know, it's mostly done streaming is what's driving the business. And back then, these guys fought technology tooth and nail. Because you can't steal when you have a computer, <laughs> you know, accounting and everything. So I think it's less. And also the men running the business now are younger, and they've grown up really working side by side with many women. And it's not a big deal to them if they have a woman as a boss or a woman giving an idea. You know, they, like yeah. you said, most of these guys have daughters. They see the world through a different, you know, prism where women have already been in the workforce. They're not afraid, you know, even though there's only men at the top running the business, it hasn't changed on that end. But that's only because these older guys from my time never trained a woman. They never felt a woman could do that job, run the business. So they didn't bring anyone up through the ranks. But I, I think eventually it will happen. Yeah. Interesting. Um, in the book, you sleep with a very, very famous rock star. I won't say who. Folks can buy the book if they want to find out. Did you have a lawyer look at this book before you published it? Because you do name names. You do talk about yes, a lot of, of – Yeah. And what did the lawyer say? 
Well, the lawyer, I cleared legal. You can't just put out a book. Um, you know, a publishing house is not going to let you put out a book without it clearing through First Amendment uh, attorneys. And I cleared legal. So that's all that matters. Did, so you didn't have to take anything out? There was nothing they, they made you take out of the book? No, I, I actually had very, uh, from the original manuscript, I had a couple of legal changes. And w- when you write a book, you can write it in a way where, you you know, the reader can can understand what I'm saying without using a specific word. So, But I was careful how I wrote the book. And if anybody had any claims against me, you know, that I I'll, I'll, would have to deal with. And let's see who holds up under the deposition. <laughs> yes, that, that you almost sounds like you're, uh, Dorothy, like you're looking forward to that in, in some, some way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be my next book, The Depositions. <laughs> yeah. So this book follows your your path trying to become an A&R executive, a, a person who looks for new music to sign and uh, help sort of shepherd through the process at the label. And at the time, there are zero, uh, I think in the history of Atlantic Records, right, there's zero female A&R reps. And you eventually become the first A&R rep. And uh, there's just amazing stories. You you help sign this band called Skid Row from right here in New Jersey. Yeah. And, again, and again, you're at a Skid Row show, and I believe it's Ahmet Erdogan again, touches you in a way that causes you years of anxiety and panic. Uh, was there any thought like, I should quit, I should sue these people, or was or, or did you just know your career would be over and you chose the career? Well, you know, that that is a great question. Well, there was never a thought that I wanted to quit the music business. I just accepted it, and I don't know if it was really, I was very young at the time and immature. And I just felt like, why should I quit? These people should quit. And eventually, (laughs) I did try to sue the company when I get to the second label after Atlantic. And they just flat out said, go ahead. We'll blackball you. I was already being blackballed. We'll blackball you for the, the rest of your career. And they did come after me. They did hurt my career. But I just felt almost defiant that why do I have to back down and stop what I want to do to these people that I viewed as, you know, with no morals, no conscience, just really bad people. And I don't know, sometimes I say, gee, was I really stupid or stubborn? I'm an Aries by nature. We're very stubborn people. But I just dug my heels in and said, I want to do this for as long as I could do it. And we'll see how far it takes me. And looking back, do you regret all that, or are you, or you you're, or, I mean, I, you know, it's it's life. There's no, you can't look back exactly. But if you could tell yourself, your younger self, to do it again, would you do it the same way? I, I don't know if I would do it the same way, but I wouldn't really change much because what the, all of these men gave me and what this career gave me, I had a, a, I had success, not on the grand scale that I imagined, but it was such a great learning process. I learned about people. I learned about business. I learned about mostly myself, which is a, a really a great gift when you know your own limitations and you get to be comfortable in your own skin. They gave me a book. And that book is uh, something that is, you know, people are reaching out to me and it's been amazing. And I'll be speaking about my book in different colleges. So they gave me the greatest gift. Yeah, well, you, again, once again, I'm amazed that you are able to look at the bright side of all this. I would 
I would be filled with anger. Uh, I almost am just reading the book. Uh, you had a terrible marriage, ruined your credit. That's in the book. You went to work yeah. for Giant for this guy named Irving Azoff, who totally screwed you over. What kind? I mean, it, he's an, another guy who's uh, he is a giant in the industry. How was he different from the style of Ahmet Erdogan? Oh, he was like I, I wrote in the book. He was a pretty straightforward guy, um, the way he dealt with people. And he wasn't, um, you know, he had a lot of women work for him, worked uh, at the company. And he wasn't like Ahmet was always groping, you know, always saying inappropriate things. He wasn't like that. And that's why I was very disappointed that I did get screwed out of a hit record there and I didn't you know, get my career, but I understand that he was part of that old boys network. And, you know, who's more important, a woman, uh, you know, an entry level person or, or these big guys in the music business. So. Hmm. Uh, you work at RCA, another horrible, totally toxic atmosphere, so much so that you think these guys were sabotaging their own success of the label as a whole just to play office politics kind of uh eventually you somebody says you know you should go to therapy dorothy you do and it's a fantastic experience for you right yes uh, you know i i kept i couldn't understand i was always frustrated i wake up in the morning and saying i'm why are things not changing for me as i'm going to label to label i'm not becoming more successful if anything it's becoming worse abuse is becoming worse i have to take lower titles it's like working for the same horrible person. It was like working for Satan, a combination of uh, devils. So when it was suggested to me that, you know, why am I attracting this? Why am I, you know, because you also have to attract this type of person in your life, this type of man, um, because it feeds your own insecurities and your own psychological warfare that goes on in your head that keeps you down. I did go to therapy and became open to the possibility that I was contributing to this culture. I was enabling these men and it was hurting me and I didn't want to be in pain anymore. I didn't want to be angry anymore. You know, it should have been the best time of my life. I was viewing it as the worst time. And when I began to work on myself and understand my own shortcomings and my own desires, um, it was very healthy for me, and I was able to put a stop to it and not allow myself to be abused or help these men abuse other people. And that includes men. They also abuse men in the workplace, you know, through yelling and shouting and demeaning them and name-calling, and it, you know, and that's all part. You know, people have to stand up when they see that type of uh, abuse in an office and say, this is not good for the staff, and it isn't. It's not good for morale. You work at uh, this label called Relativity, and during that time, the folks at Atlantic, they don't exactly get their comeuppance, but there is kind of some scandals break, sort of the years yeah. of, of bending the rules and uh, s- stealing, I guess. It would be another way to put it, sort of come back to them. But it's funny because Doug Morris, the guy sort of at the center of everything, goes on to an amazing career. You know, none of this kind of slows any of these guys down. Like every scandal, uh, you know, so many yeah. of the people, so many of the people that you name in the book, uh, Tommy Matola and Walter Yentikoff, later you work at Columbia. There are two more characters, you know, and these guys get dragged through the mud and they just come up 
you know, one of their other guys in the club kind of just gives them their next job. It's like a, a parachute they all have just, you know, for being guys. Well, that is correct. They all, it's, they close ranks. They all help each other. And you're right. They go from the worst scandals that would just put anyone else out of business. They kept going and rising and becoming more successful and making more money and becoming more prominent. But what we're seeing now in society are that some of these men, I mean, it has not touched really the music business as much, but it it is a little bit. Men like Les Moonves, Harvey Weinstein, all of these guys, where they've run these shows for so long, they're all getting it now. So we have yet to see. I mean, Doug Morris, obviously, is he's 80 years old and just opened up his own record company. He's left Sony. Um, we'll see what happens with some of the other men. They're all starting to get their come up. And, and I think that, you know, karma reaches everyone. It's tough when the president says, you know, grab her by the whatever. It's tough yeah. to, you know, for when when that's the very top and that's that's the example. It's a weird, it's a weird time. But you're right. Yes, a lot of guys are 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 getting it, and and society is saying, you know, we're not cool with this. And hopefully, yes, it will lead to some kind of a change. Uh, so 2006, finally, the you know the music industry is kind of totally changed, uh, and you finally get out. Uh, you mentioned earlier that labels w- did not sort of see the digital revolution coming and sort of fought against technology and stuff. I, th- I find that interesting that they all sort of held on to their to their thing. Did you see it coming? Did you ever say, hey, maybe we should, you know, try to work at this new technology before it puts us out of business? No, I didn't. I, look, the computers were just coming in in the early 90s. They were having them just getting installed in record companies. They knew, obviously, with Napster that this was the future, but they fought against the tooth and nail because these are old school white men running the business. And you, again, you can't do all these shenanigans. The emperor has no clothes if you're going to do straight streaming and numbers are being counted with no physical product. Don't forget physical product. It costs a record company a dollar to manufacture an entire CD. They sold it for $13. That's huge cash profit margin, bonuses, vacations, villas in Acapulco (laughs) that Time Warner had. This, why would you embrace Napster? They would, trying to put that out to business you cannot you know the system was rigged and they wanted it rigged as long as they were in control to make bonuses in the millions that money doesn't exist anymore in terms of uh you know there's still a lot of money now the music business is just starting to make it again in streaming but without that physical product you can't manipulate and control everything so of course they were going to fight it am i right that now you are doing crisis pr Yes, I'm doing um, crisis PR and executive PR, and um, that's what I do to make a living. So it sounds perfect. I mean, the crisis part of it, anyway. Uh, you describe, uh, <laughs> you know, the the book sort of ends with another phone call from Amit Erdogan, who you describe basically as an effed up, complicated, brilliant man. Right. And again, I'm I wouldn't be so forgiving as you are. Uh, and then there's some lessons that uh, the book ends with lessons that you've kind of learned. Can you share uh, one or two of those with us? 
Sure. I wanted to end the book with practical lessons for anyone looking to enter into the music business, because I think you go to college and nobody tells you that, you know, you have to set your alarm clock in the morning. You kind of have to learn the hard way when you're late for a test. So my biggest lesson, and I know this is funny, but the one I love the most is that don't go to work when you're sick because you infect the entire office. You take people out and, you know, the office can live without a person for two or three days. Life goes on. And, um, you know, don't uh, be a wise ass at work or be envious of other people's success. Be a team player, and that's very important. And I I think sometimes people's egos uh, get in the way of really uh, for the greater good of the company. So those are my biggest, my favorites. Uh, Dorothy Carvello is the author of Anything for a Hit, and like I said, I read it in basically one long session. I couldn't put it down, just because, as I said earlier, I'm interested in how the record company, especially during that time when, as you said, CDs were booming and they were just raking in piles of money, and so the decadence was also at sort of an all-time yeah. high, and, and you were right there in the center of it. And this book tells your story and that story as well. Uh, I, you know, I wish you luck with the book. And uh, interesting, we'll see if if it nudges, if it moves things a little bit. Do you think this book will actually change things just a, a little bit? Yes, I do, because there have already been people are starting to work on stories about the cleans and talking to the artist. And there's also been other stories about executives in the book and how they keep, you know, certain people on the payroll throughout the course of their careers. So little by little change, just like the Me Too movement is only in its infancy and beginnings. You know, change takes a minute. So we will see how it goes on. And um, I'm looking forward. All right. Uh, I've got Mess Around queued up, another old, old Atlantic record, but I didn't realize this record was co-written by Ahmed Erdogan. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe he stole the writing credit on it, of course. Who knows? It's always impossible. But it's a perfect (laughs) uh, mess around. Uh, Thanks so much, and uh, good luck with the book, Dorothy, and and maybe we'll talk to you for the next book. Uh, We hope so. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a great day. People too, I mess around. They're doing the mess around. They're doing the mess around. Everybody doing the mess around. Ah, everybody was juice. You can bet your soul. They did the boogie boogie with a study roll. They mess around. They're doing the mess around. They're doing the mess around. Around. Nah, uh, when I say stop, don't you move a peg. When I say go, just uh, shake your leg and do the mess around. I declare, do the mess around. Yeah, do the mess around. Everybody's doing the mess around. Now let me have it, there, boy.
knows how to shake that thing. Mess around. I declare she can mess around. <laughs> 